0: Smartwater Water Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure, it's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smart Water Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com.
1: Hello, and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. Each episode, a guest comes on to play a clip of one of their jokes and then discusses how they wrote it and how it fits into what they're trying to do with their comedy. This week's guest is Dulce Sloan, a stand-up comedian and host of the podcast That Black Ass Show. Dulce has appeared on this podcast before in our Clusterfest panel with Trevor Noah and The Daily Show correspondents. Dulce still works at The Daily Show, but this episode we're talking about her terrific stand-up comedy. Stemming from her background as a theater actor, Dulce has an uncommonly captivating stage presence. Some comedians need to stomp around the stage to get people's attention, but Dulce just stands resolute and you can't look away. This effect is magnified by her slow, deliberate way of presenting her material. All of this is on display in the joke she chose for this interview that she told in her appearance on Conan in October 2019. It is about her muse, New York City. I say muse ironically, as actually Dulce hates the city, which she currently lives in so freaking much, to a point that she dedicated the first third of her Comedy Central half hour special to how much she dislikes New York, especially after moving there from Los Angeles and growing up in Atlanta. A shorter version of the joke at the center of this episode appeared in that Comedy Central special taped in January of 2019, so I was able to see its growth as she worked on it over the next year. So, here is that final version, and here is Dulce Sloan.
2: How y'all doing? Listen, so... uh, Two years ago, I was forced to move to New York because of success. And I hate that place! Oh, Jesus, I hate that place, because God forbid one of them Yankees finds out I'm not from there. Oh... So I'm at the bodega near my house, uh, standing in line for the, one of those E. coli sandwiches. <laughs> and the woman behind me goes, Aah! I'm like, mm. what's happening to me right now? Just another wonderful day in New York. She's like, where are you from? You don't sound like you're from New York. Because they all sound like witches to me. <laughs> it's like, no, ma'am, I'm from the South. Ah! <laughs> What do you mean you're not from New York? Ma'am, there are 49 other states. <laughs> well, I mean, what are you doing here? Ma'am, I'm just trying to get one of these dangerous sandwiches. How can I help you? <laughs> well, you must be so glad to be in New York. Why the hell would I be glad to be in New York? <laughs> what well, a South is so racist. The South is so racist. Oh! You mean the part of the South that starts at Canada and ends at Mexico? <laughs> Last time I checked, America's racist. She goes, yeah, right! And then she hobbled out of this bodega. (laughs) But this is the thing, I know the North is more racist because in the North, they split up white folks. They got Irish neighborhoods, Italian neighborhoods. I live in a Greek neighborhood. (laughs) What kind of deep cut of white is Greek? Where did you get these people? You know what they call Irish and Italian and Greek in the South? White! Nobody cares! (laughs) Kidding me? I don't care what flag your Caucasian flies under. Go buy a house and sit down, Brandon. Don't nobody care.
1: I'm here with the comedian behind the joke you just heard, Dulce Sloan. Thank you for being here.
2: Oh, thank you for having me.
1: So I, I want to talk a bit about New York uh, generally. You know, what is your first memory of it? Before you moved here for The Daily Show in 2017, had you come to New York before? Had you ever considered moving here?
2: Um, I'd come in. I was working at a theater in Pennsylvania, in Quakertown, Pennsylvania, doing summer stock Theater. So basically, it's when theater companies just have like a summer run of shows. Mm -hmm. I was working there between my junior and senior year of college. And I think we'd gotten the weekend off for like a Memorial Day, maybe. And so that was the first time I ever came to New York. And, you know, after hearing about New York for so long and it's great and it's this and it's that. And then I get here and I said to my friend, um, I felt like I came to Disneyland, but all the rides were off. Sure. And I'm just like, I don't understand. What the big deal is. And that's when I learned that um, I wasn't a fan of the city. Uh, That's when I learned at the tender age of 20 Mm -hmm. that the city's trash. So, you know, just being out all day in a white shirt and my shirt being filthy, um, you know, blowing my nose and look like I've been welding for six hours. The lack of air conditioning in a summertime. So it was very much like I'm not a fan Mm -hmm. And then I didn't come back again until 2016. I met a comic, uh, Peggy O'Leary, at a comedy festival um, in North Carolina. And we got to be good friends. And, you know, I just moved to L.A. and I was on the road touring. And I got a break in like April or May. And she was like, well, just come to New York for two weeks. You can stay with me. And she actually lived a mile from where I live now in New York. Mm-hmm. Cause I'd been to Brooklyn, I'd been to Yonkers, I'd been to Manhattan, I'd been so I'd been all over just in the two times that I'd come, and I was like, oh, I actually liked Queens, I actually liked Astoria, um, so that's why I live here now. But I had been here two times before, and just solidified that this is not a place for me.
1: So you're born in Miami, but you grew up in Atlanta, and then after mm-hmm. college, you also you started stand up in Atlanta. You then moved to LA. And then, as I said, for The Daily Show, you moved to New York. Mm -hmm. What are your first observations about living in New York as a New Yorker?
2: Oh, the city's trying to kill you on a daily basis uh, is the first thing that I learned. But I think the most annoying thing is just people's overall very staunch objection to people saying that they don't like the city. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's a very odd thing. That people are so caught up in either being from here or saying they're from here. But it seems to be like when people move to New York, you know, it's one of those cities you dream of moving to. Like, I made it. I moved to New York or I made it. I moved to L.A. But the difference kind of seems to be that, you know, when people move to L.A., they just move to L.A. Mm -hmm. When people move to New York, they have to go through some trial by fire to become a new yorker yeah and i was like this is a very odd thing to me where it's just like you have to prove yourself to a city it just seems weird to me because mm-hmm. i don't like going toe-to-toe with a municipality that's not yeah. what i was born to do i'm made for that and so i think when you make something your identity then when i say i don't like the city people take it so personally because it feels like a personal attack mm-hmm
1: were you talking about it on stage immediately or whenever you started, started doing stand-up living in New York? Were you immediately being like, this place is trash and you guys all have Stockholm Syndrome? Like, was it a thing that immediately felt like something you should talk about on stage?
2: I have a tendency to talk about things that affect me and things that are at the forefront of my mind. And so the things that were at the forefront of my mind were, everyone talks about how it's hard, but it's always the, but you just got to go through it. You just got to get through it. And it was just, you know, I couldn't find the grocery stores that I wanted to go to. It was, you know, all of these things that were difficult. Like, I, you know, grew up eating Mexican food and going to grocery stores where I could find Mexican products, Latino products. And so, you know, seeing how split up the city is, but then people telling me all the time, you know, I'm perpetuating this idea that the South is the only place in America that's racist, that was annoying to me because I've experienced more racism outside of the South than I've experienced in the South, but I also grew up in Atlanta. So, you know, I grew up around black people and white people who are accustomed to being around black people. Um, I just grew up in a different environment and I grew up in a very diverse environment. So being in L.A. and being in New York, it was you know, when I got to LA, I used to tell jokes about how like I moved to LA and couldn't find the black people. I'm like, I don't know where you're even, I don't know where they are. And then, you know, coming to New York, it was kind of the same thing. Where it was just like everybody's split up, and they're not split up like this in a lot of places. So it was immediately talking about this is what I'm observing, this is what I'm feeling, this is what I'm seeing. So once I started getting like my sea legs of you know this nightmare. um, Just really talking about just stuff that I had gone through or stuff I'd seen or stuff that people had said to me.
1: In the joke that you tell on Conan, you talk about an interaction you had at a bodega with a woman. Is that based on a real event or is that just sort of like a, a place to set a sort of experience that you were having?
2: That joke is a collection of multiple experiences that I've had. Mm-hmm. And it kind of culminated into this one thing or it's like you know people always telling me about these bodegas you know and learning about them and just you know it's because it's a corner store that sells food and in my mind it's like this food can't be safe uh everyone can't be meeting healthcare codes like there's just not you know the one around the corner from my house for a long time they had a cooler but it wasn't cold Mm -hmm. so i'm like where are you keeping this deli this cooler isn't cold i'm gonna die in here so There's that interaction or sometimes meeting people who, you know, lived in New York their whole lives. And it's a tunnel vision where they just can't imagine them interacting with someone who's not from here. Yeah. And it's like, I can't believe you're not from New York. And I'm like, man, there are 49 of this. What are you talking about? Also, there's so much tourism in this city. What are you talking about? So that was one conversation that I had with someone or people, you know, wanting to say, well, you know, New York's not as racist as that. And it's just like, it was just me meeting multiple people, having multiple conversations. And it kind of just all culminated into this one conversation mm-hmm. for this bit.
1: In general, what does like writing a joke look like for you? I mean, I think for every comedian, it's a little bit different of how much it's like actually writing words down. How much is it just talking on stage and remembering it? You know, how does a thing like this
0: uh, evolve?
2: My process is different from different comics because I have a performance background. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: So a lot of times, as soon as I think of a joke, a lot of comics write and write and write a bit over and over until they feel like the wording is perfect. And then they do it on stage. Me, if I get the framework and the idea of, you know, the premise, the setup, what the punchline is going to be, I perform it as quickly as I can. Mm. Just because the whole point is to perform it anyway. And how the audience reacts is going to tell me where the laugh, you know, because it's like I know where the punchline is, but sometimes there's little things that you can say in a setup of a joke that end up being funny. Like I have certain bits where it's just, I'm just telling what happened and I've gotten laughs in the setup of jokes because it's, this is just how my brain works, but that also, you know, ended up being a fun thing that the audience, um, enjoyed. So for me, it's as soon as I get an idea, I want to go perform it and work it out.
1: Mm -hmm. Are there specific places? Are you deliberate about, um, I'm thinking about your, your colleague at the daily show, Roy Wood Jr. Who like is very deliberate about how he goes to different rooms for different things. Are, are you, since it is so much about the interaction with the audience, are you thinking about like, oh, if I'm for this joke to make sense, I need to do it in these specific places or, or anything like that?
2: You have to remember that Roy Wood Jr. is a robot, and <laughs> yes. Roy is very technical mm-hmm. about how he works. No one works like Roy. No one, no one works like Roy. So with me, it's just. I want to try this as many places as possible to see if it works. Because there's just certain jokes that are just funny to you. And there's always going to be things that are just funny to you. And no matter how many times you try it out on stage with the audience you try it in front of, it's just funny to you. Yeah. And sometimes as a comic, you have those bits where you're just like, I know they're not going to laugh at this. And I don't care. <laughs> yeah. I just said this for me. Because I'm doing a six-show weekend And I want something that makes me laugh while I'm in the middle of telling all of this. But I just try to work it as often as I can. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't always have like a specific place in mind. Sure.
1: So I want to walk through the joke. And I should say, you know, you do a version of this joke in your Comedy Central half hour as well, which was filmed, I think, nine months or so before your Conan set. So Mm -hmm. it's interesting. There are sort of small differences that can kind of reveal how the sort of joke evolved in its later stages. In your half hour, you sort of have this conversation where it's just like sometimes people will say this where where you have that sort of exchange where in the Conan set you're very deliberate about forming it like a story and having sort of it an interaction with the woman and it's more of a scene. Can you talk about either sort of how that evolved or you sort of what do you like better about structuring it more of a as like a full scene or a story?
2: Well, on the cone, when it had been nine months later, so I had gotten to, you know, the joke had developed more, but also in the half hour, I had to cover more jokes because mm-hmm. I had a longer amount of time. And so it's some jokes I did shorten a little because I wanted to be able to talk about more things. Yeah. And also, as a comic, you have your. You know, you have your five-minute set, your 10-minute set, your 15, your 30, and then your 45, 45-hour. 45 so there are some jokes that I would tell where it's, all right, I've got more time or I've got less time. And in this situation, actually, it ended up being in the shorter set. I did a longer version of the joke. Mm-hmm. But after doing that joke more, um, because before it was just, Working the half hour, working the half hour. So I had that joke, but I was just working that half hour. Yeah. And then after doing the half hour, but that was still a new joke. I'm like, well, I have it and I did it for the half hour. But let's see if I keep working this joke, how much more I can fit it. Mm-hmm. Like what more can I do with it? You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So after messing with it and tweaking it and seeing, you know, How much more can I interact with the woman? What more else can I learn? What more else can I say? By the time we got to the Conan set, I'd gotten to a point where I had a little bit more that was in it. Yeah. And I had to make the decision. Do I want to do the shorter version of it? Or do I want to see how it would seem? Because for me, I liked having a joke that had more depth to it. And I had expanded it some more. And I'd like being able to perform that on Conan because I like that joke. Yeah. Um you know, the woman's voice had changed and developed more. And, you know, I was able to have a longer conversation with her and, but it's able to put more little jokes and more little tags in. So from where it was in the half hour, I like where it is in the half hour, but after, you know, doing that joke, I talked to a couple comics and they were like, you know, see what more you can put in, see how much more you can mess with it. Cause you know, sometimes with jokes, it's You know, I'm trying to get Mm -hmm. all the juice out of the orange. Yeah. It's this is all I can do with this. But with this one, it was like I could really tell a bigger story. I could really show more interactions. I can really show, you know, my disdain for this woman. This woman's disdain for me. And I tried out a couple different endings because at some point it didn't have an ending. It just Mm -hmm. stopped. So I was like, all right, how's this conversation and. Because there was times I was working it where it's like the joke ended and I ended up like being the bad guy. Yeah. I can't be the bad guy in this situation. This woman accosted me. She's talking shit. How do I get to this ending? And so by the time I got to doing Conan, then it was like, okay, now I got to the ending that I wanted.
1: Mm-hmm. So I want to go through sort of not line by line, but sort of the order of it to see – what do you like about certain parts or sort of how those ideas came to you? You know, the the joke opens with two years ago, I was forced to move to New York because of success, which is a line that it, you've had for a while. It's sort of, I feel like it's how you introduce a lot of New York material. What do you mm-hmm. What do you like about that phrasing? What do you feel like it tells the audience that you like?
2: I've always been a big fan of a bait and switch. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I watch a lot of uh, British murder mysteries. Um, and so you know because I never wanted to live in New York in my life in my life my goal was to never live here and I knew for work I was going to have to be here because I'd come to New York once I started doing stand up full time and 2016 I was coming here all the time shooting stuff Um, I think between 2016 and 2018 I did like 8 episodes of Comedy Knockout so I was coming here all the time for work and you know shooting other projects and doing other things so i knew i was gonna have to come here to work i just never know that my i was gonna be paying rent here that's what i never and just like you know and you just in the back of your mind i'm just like i know i'm gonna end up living here (laughs) i knew it i already knew it i already knew it that's just how work goes yeah and so basically it was just how my brain processes it Mm -hmm. where it's like I never wanted to move here, but I had to move here because of a good job.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So in my mind, it's I was forced to move here because of success. And, I, <laughs> you know, I got an email from somebody and it was just like, oh, you don't like New York? It's like you came here for success. How dare you talk about this city? And I usually don't respond, but I was just in Corona brain and I just emailed her back. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. And again, it just goes back to people just caping for the city so hard. But it's just like, yeah, just because I went somewhere because it's a good opportunity doesn't mean i want to be there. Like, one of my friends who grows up here is always talking shit about LA. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, I'm sorry, you don't like sunshine and beaches? What are you saying? You sound stupid. You sound stupid. I was like, oh, he's like, ah, but like the people are fake. And I'm like, oh, because the people here are better? What do you? stop it stop it you just want to hate because people love to hate la this is the thing about people from la they don't care yeah new york is always a stuff it's very interesting to me because people like i don't like la and people from la they're like so and i always thought it was interesting but yeah that line came about where it's just like that's just my brain's way of processing but i also think it's a funny thing yeah like you're forced into a situation because something that good happened to you yeah. That's not how getting forced into situations happens. Usually good things don't happen when you're forced into something. Mm-hmm. So that's the other thing. I just thought it was a funny juxtaposition of words because it always jolts the audience. They're like, oh, it's forcing. Oh, no, because of success. Wait, what? What'd she? Hold on, huh? Because I can see the audience go, mm, those two things don't match <laughs> yeah. at all. And that's my favorite way to put things together.
1: I imagine it's also good at like at the beginning Earning confidence of people who don't. It's like, I'm successful. I immediately am in control of this. It's like a good introduction to make sure the audience is listening.
2: Yeah, because I had a comic say to me one time, like I was just doing a show in Atlanta and the crowd was so rowdy, so drunk, so loud. And I started speaking. Because what most comics do because when crowds are rowdy like that, they try to yell over the audience. Like, speak louder. Mm-hmm. But that makes the audience speak louder. So now we're in a competition. Because I've seen a comic just up basically just almost yelling his whole set. It wasn't a fun thing to watch because he got off stage exhausted. Mm-hmm. But one thing I started doing that I didn't even notice I was doing, and I think it's because I'd done theater for so long, is I understood the power of volume when it comes to attentiveness. So... We had a really rowdy crowd and as opposed to yelling over them, I started speaking more quietly Mm. and I didn't notice it. And I got off stage and another comic was like, when you dropped your volume, they stopped talking. I said, yeah, because and I was like, yeah, what do you mean? And he's like, a lot of comics yell over the crowd. You dropped your volume down. So since you dropped your volume down, they started paying attention. And I didn't realize that I did it. And the next time it happened and I did it, I was like, this is what he was saying. Because I had been performing for so long, theater instincts kind of kicked in. Um, Because like a lot of times when you do children's shows, when the kids start to get real rowdy, you bring your volume down. Because if you can hear someone at a regular volume, you can just talk over them because you're not paying attention. But when someone brings their volume down, like when someone's whispering to you, they're trying to tell you something important. Hmm. So your natural instinct is to go, wait, they dropped their, what they, wait, what they say? What, wait, what they, what they say? What they say? So your natural instinct is to pay attention when someone drops their volume. So that's one of the things that I kind of have just figured out from just performing and having a, that kind of background where it's like no matter where, I've been all over the country, all over the world. And if you have a rowdy crowd, as an adult yelling at a group of adults, people, some people resent that. Yeah. So you can't come in with the wagging of the finger and you guys, I got a two drink minimum. I spent too much money to be here tonight. You're not going to yell at me. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of giving the audience a decision. Well, it's like either you can lower your voice or you can hear what I'm saying. But I'm not going to yell at you. We're all adults in here. Dealing with an audience as a comic and dealing with an audience as a theater performer is different because it's a fourth wall. So I've had the audience watch me and perform, and then I've had it where I've interacted with them. So it gives you a different perspective.
1: But it's interesting that you, you essentially have figured out – I mean, it's like I'll say that that sort of pacing in your use of volume modulation is like I think of the definitive Dulce Sloan technique. Or like when I think of your comedy, I think of that – And it seems like you're able to figure out a way to sort of recreate a dynamic that makes sense for how the audience should behave. you're like, your job is to listen to me, that's how I know audiences should behave, let me make sure I can... And your instincts-wise, figure out a way to sort of recreate that by talking quieter, talking slower, pausing, if it it means they need to catch up. It's... um, Is it... Does it... Do you feel like ultimately because you do that, you were able to sort of recreate um, a similar sort of relationship to the audience, where they they do listen to you in a way that you feel like they should?
2: Yeah, because sometimes you have crowds that are just not gonna... Some crowds just aren't gonna listen. Yeah. And it's... You're their background noise. Sometimes. And, you know, sometimes comics resent that. Where it's like, They came to the show, they came to the show, why won't they shut up? And it's just like, they just wanted to be somewhere. (laughs) And they just happened to come to where your job is. They just wanted to be somewhere. So I try not to have disdain for an audience. You know, like sometimes you'll go to shows and it's a big room. And it's like, say it's an open mic or even like a book show. And there's only 15, 20 people there. Or even 10. And a lot of comics would be like, oh, we could have done this in my living room. And and then they'll they'll be annoyed that there's not a lot of people there. And after like three or four comics doing that, I'll sometimes go up and go, thank y'all for coming. Mm. Because we could have been saying this to each other, to ourselves. I'm not going to shit on the fact that there's 20 people here. Because we could have been saying this to zero people. Yeah. And so I kind of like to not... Because I feel like sometimes it's like I call them like anti-crowd DJs. Mm. Cause you know that those DJs they'll start playing a really popular song and then everybody gets up and then they'll switch to a song that no one's heard of that they enjoy.
1: Mm.
2: And I'm like, this is literally not your job. This is literally not your job. Your job is to keep the party going. And so sometimes we give the audience too much credit. Sometimes we don't give the audience enough credit. Mm. You know, I've been on shows where all of us have just like these outdoor shows that we're doing now. I was in one in Brooklyn like two weeks ago and, you know, it's an outdoor show at a brewery and the the man in the building across the street, I guess, didn't appreciate because there was outdoor comedy. So he started playing salsa music very loudly. So he's blasting salsa music. Then there is fireworks going off every 30 minutes. Then there's buses coming by every 20 minutes. Then there's various cars rolling by and motorcycles. And then this was like the first weekend that like everybody had really been out of their house after quarantine. Hmm. And so the audience just has puppy energy. So they're happy just to be out and to see each other. So if the audience isn't listening, there's music blasting, there's fireworks going off. There's multiple vehicles driving by. Nobody is listening. Nobody's listening. You know at one point I looked at the booker and I was just like, I think you need an intermission. I think we, I think we all need just a moment. I think they need to be able to talk. I think we all need to just reset for a second. And she's like, are you going up?" And I was like, absolutely not. No. I've done stand up in almost this is really like the fourth or fifth fourth time I've done stand up in four months. I am not putting myself through this. No no it's some of the comics like they're not listening and i was like we have to acknowledge why they're not listening
1: Mm -hmm.
2: they finally got to come out of their houses you know we made it literally you're happy to be alive you're happy to not be afraid for that three hours and you're happy to just be out and around people and then you're having a drink and a brewery so it's like and then we're happy to be out and be able to perform again so it's just like we have to acknowledge where they are. Mm -hmm. And like with doing these outdoor shows, it's like, listen, we haven't worked in months and we're all like, we don't know what's going to happen. And these outdoor shows are a new thing. And last night I did a show at the stand. I'm just like, whatever comes out of my mouth is whatever comes out of my mouth. Because I have to acknowledge, I think this is one of the times where everyone's really looking at the audience and ourselves going, We've all been through a lot. We've all been very scared for a very long time. How do we reconcile these things? How do we, is our new normal is sitting outside? Because we mm. literally can't be indoors.
1: Back to the joke, the E. coli sandwiches part. What does that joke communicate for you? What do you like about calling them E. coli sandwiches?
2: Um, That goes back to the bodega near my house, having a um cooler with lunch meat in it, but the cooler wasn't cold. Yeah. But I also feel like, because I was talking to our friends, I was like, you're telling me every single bodega in the city, the food is safe. Every single one? Because Chipotle's had multiple recalls, and that is a chain. Mm-hmm. So every single privately, independently owned bodega, this food is safe. He's like, well, yeah. And I was like, I refuse to believe that. Refuse to believe that I've gotten food poisoning from chain restaurants before. So no, I'm not going to believe that every single bodega is safe. So that's where that comes from with me just being uh, skeptical of bodegas.
1: So then we meet this woman. And as you mentioned, it's interesting to watch the sort of portrayal evolve, you know, as an actor, how do you approach this moment? How do you sort of inhabit this character?
2: I just see her as that, you know, that old lady you see who you can just tell has just lived in the city her entire life and you know it's that older lady who kind of you know she's got her cane or her walker and you know how no matter how far she lean you know it's she's got that old lady kind of like lean where like the shoulders are kind of forward uh and she's got like that rolling walker and you know no matter what happens she's still going to go the four flights up to her apartment i don't know how she does it but she does it every time Um, and and that's why I said that, you know, that line where I talk in her voice and it was like, because they all sound like witches to me, Hmm. um, because they do. That's what a witch sounds like to me. It's like that. Like, that's what that's what I've been shown. And so that's what I I wanted to create the image of that, you know. Old woman, if I couldn't do the physicality of her, like I was like her voice, because we've all interact like if you've been in New York, you've interacted with a woman who sounds like this. Yeah. And so I wanted to do her voice where it's like, oh, I know exactly the old lady you're talking about.
1: You you mentioned the sort of because they all sound like witches. That part follows like a, a classic Dulce Sloan st- thing where you say because, you know, what I'm talking about you have like, I was thinking there's like, I went to the grocery store the other day to buy food because I'm a human or I used to live in LA because Jesus loves me. You sort of do a lot of because is a big word for you. I
2: don't know if you noticed that. I think those are just tags. And I think that I kind of use. Like I'll have like these silly aside moments in my brain where it's just like, you know, because I'm like, I used to live in L.A. because Jesus loves me. Hmm. And it's just me going. This is just how my brain goes. Oh, here's this fun little thing that I thought about.
1: It is like a little tag on a setup. Usually, usually it's like you said a thing that's not a joke. Let me get a little joke in there while I sort of continue on with my trajectory.
2: Yeah. And I, and I think it's, you know, because, uh, when I started, um, Big Kenny Johnson mentored me. He's actually the reason I started doing stand-up. And so because he had come up doing, you know, black rooms, urban rooms, you have to have a laugh every 30 seconds. It's just how the rooms go, you know? I, Cause when I started, I would be in, you know, mainstream rooms, white rooms, And you'd see a guy do a, you know, one minute, two minute setup of a joke without a laugh. And I'm like, this would not fly in a black room because the pacing in black rooms is different. And we all know the difference between, you know, seeing certain comics and how their setups work. I can tell, you know, which clubs they've worked in and or how they their style coming up. So for me, it's that kind of that way we're keeping to that, I like to have little laughs as I'm building up to a punchline. And I think with those little asides on setups and premises, it's giving the audience that little, that little laugh. Cause in my mind, it's like the idea of just stacking the laughs up.
1: Hmm.
2: So it's like I give you this little piece and this little piece, and then boom, here's the big thing. But along the way, because I also think if people have those little laughs, they're paying more attention. Mm. Because I've seen setups and premises. I'm just like, yo, dude, I know this joke and I quit listening.
1: So in the um, Comedy Central Presents or the half hour, the woman goes, you're not from New York. What do you mean you're not from New York? You say, no, but for the grace of God, I was not born here. Thank you. She goes, where are you from? You go, Atlanta, you're welcome. And that turns into, no ma'am, I'm from the South. And she goes, what do you mean you're not from New York? And then you go, ma'am, there are 49 other states. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk about what, what the second version, why's, why do you like that better? What do you feel like that achieves that sort of switch up?
2: I added it because that was, I'd had an interaction with someone where the woman was like, well, what do you mean you're not from New York? And I was like, the fuck kind of question is this what are you talking about she's like you're not from like she just could not imagine someone not being from where she was from and i'm like there's an entire planet what are you talking about and that was just me processing that interaction Hmm. because it was just like how do you not understand people live other places why are you messing with me (gasps) because it felt like she was messing with me so that's all that is, was I'd had an interaction where a woman just, I could not believe that I wasn't from New York. There's a whole planet.
1: So then she says people are racist in the South, and then you say, you mean the part of the South that starts in Canada, ends in Mexico.
2: Mm-hmm. That's, like,
1: such, you know, that, that's the type of joke that when people see stand-ups, they're like, well, someone must have, like, been writing that out for weeks or months or whatever. Is that something you'll riff on stage? Is that something that sort of will come to you as you're sort of like noodling on the idea in your head?
2: That was a riff. Wow. I Good was just you. messing with the joke. You think <laughs> I was just, if you see my first Conan set, um, yeah. when I come out and I say, you know, I know you're wondering why you can see this big bitch's bra. It's because his bra was a hundred dollars. And if I pay a hundred dollars or something, you're going to see it. Mm-hmm. That was a riff. For on that
1: Conan set, just
2: the first time I said the joke was a riff, and mm-hmm. I just kept it because somebody was like, because another comic I think it was Gilbert Lowen, after I first did it, he was like, "That's funny, you have to keep that." But the reason that I said it was because I had on a lace shirt, and also my bras were expensive, and I got tired of wearing solid shirts over expensive underwear, and so it was just this is a riff, and it worked, and I like that it worked, and. That goes back to people. You mean the part of the South that starts in Canada and ends in Mexico was my most succinct way of saying, one, stop pinning all the racism in America on the South. Mm -hmm. Two, all of America's racist. So since you think that the only place in America that is racist is the South, I'm going to make the South the entire country Mm -hmm. was the way that I processed that information.
1: Um, I wanted to ask you because you mentioned the... The, the bra joke, and I, w- I was thinking that and in an old interview, you were just talking about how like that was like a go-to stage outfit was sort of leopard print and then your bra showing in some capacity. And even in this, Conan said, uh-huh. you're also wearing leopard and you, you see it's not, you're not wearing like a mesh shirt, but there's a little bit of your bra showing. Why is that if you're a superhero is sort of your uniform? Why is that sort of like your wardrobe for the Dulce Sloan show what do you like about that what do you think it tells the audience
2: well i shop uh, i shopped a lot of rainbow hmm. because up until i started doing the daily like to like the third time I was almost on daily show if you saw me on tv i was wearing rainbow the rainbow clothing store and rainbow at one point started selling a lot of leopard print and i started buying it and leopard print got very popular, so I'd see it on bras, I'd see it on all kinds of stuff. And so that was what was trendy at the time. And I enjoyed wearing it because apparently America decided to put all fat women in one print, I guess, so we blended into each other. I don't know why. Um, It was just what was prevalent at the time. Hmm. But because I was wearing leopard print all the time, I ended up having a bit from it because I had a girl come with me at a college and ask me, Do I wear leopard print to remind me where I come from? I was like, What? Bitch, I'm from Georgia. What are you saying? What are you talking about? And so again, it was just me processing information. It's truly Mm -hmm. what it is. But leopard print was fun, it was in abundance, it was affordable. And it just ended up being something that I just ended up wearing a lot. And then, hmm. you know, they started going into florals, but they weren't as abundant. Uh, so I literally had on a floral print outfit. And when my friends came up to me and was like, oh, wait a minute. Where's the flowers now? And I was like, hey man, you know, get into it, baby. We out <laughs> here trying to change, trying to live, trying to, yeah. you know, evolve. It was just that was the clothes that were out. Yeah. So those are the clothes that were out, those are clothes I could afford, those are clothes that fit. So I just ended up in a lot
1: of love for it. We'll be right back with more Dulce Sloan.
0: Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from Zelle. The recruiter said all I needed to do was send $500 to cover mandatory safety training, and the job was mine. In a world where financial crimes are more and more sophisticated, there's a team that's got your back yee Come in, safe squad. We got a 10-3. Copy that, dispatch. We're on it. Hop in, Skip. We got a phony recruiter. Safe squad. The crime drama everyone is talking about. I know it's only my first day, but that sounds like a pretty cut-and-dry
1: job scam. Strap in, rookie. These days, criminals can even make it look like it's your
0: bank calling. But that's where we come in. My what? A savings account? Uh, Compromised? Uh-huh, uh-huh. No, I won't hold. Uh-huh, uh-huh. No, I didn't authorize a $12,000 withdrawal. That's my life savings.
2: Why don't you come with me? I'll show you how to report to the FTC. What payment platform did you use? Let's contact them, too.
0: Don't miss the TV event of the season, Safe Squad.
2: Hey, Ace. Yeah, kid. You're right. That was one hell of a first day.
0: Learn how you can spot the signs of a scam so you don't have to call the Safe Squad by visiting www.vox.com slash HQ.
1: Remember, never send money online to people you
0: don't already know and trust. Support for this podcast comes from SmartWater. Life moves pretty fast. Are you drinking water that can keep up? SmartWater Alkaline has everything you need to stay hydrated, no matter where your day takes you. Whether you're pitching a tent or your next big idea, Smart Water Alkaline can help you perform your best. It delivers a pure, crisp taste that makes it the perfect chaser after a big workout. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smart Water Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com.
1: And we're back with Dulce Sloan. So in the special, your conversation with the woman ends with you saying, you know, find me a part of America that's not racist and I'll move today. But as you mm-hmm. said, you worked on the ending and it changes to last time I checked America's racist and her just saying, you're right, which and leaving, which is a much sillier ending. Yes. <laughs> I love that part. That's my favorite part of the joke. I love that. Can you talk like, about you're right. <laughs> you talk about how, you, as you said, you struggled to figure out an ending, what you liked about just sort of her being like, all right, never mind.
2: Um, I don't know if I struggled to figure out. It. I tried out different endings to the joke to find out which got the best reaction from the audience. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you know, find me a part of America that's not racist, I'll move today. It would get a laugh, but I think it would make the audience think. And it was like, I already gave you the part where I wanted you to think. I want you to think right now. I want the joke to be done. Yeah, I want you to laugh. Be be done. And so that came about with me trying to get out of the bit, but not knowing how to get out of the bit. Because I'm like, I'm not going to use the ending that I have. So let's just see what happens. Hmm. And because at one point that bit was longer and the conversation went longer. And I'm like, okay, this conversation is too long. Let's shorten it back down. And I had to find a balance between me and her.
1: Because
2: hmm. at first I was looking like, bad guy and then she was looking at a bad guy but i think it was kind of more fun to just get to the point where the lady's like yeah you're right and then just kind of be done and because i used to go and then she was like yeah you're right and then she just left and then i was like well you didn't buy anything you just came <laughs> in the store to mess with me yeah. but that didn't always land and it's like okay if i push past or anything with this lady just leaving the store then it's not a tag i'm just talking yeah. about the joke now so that doesn't work yeah. so but the idea of her just kind of accepting it was also fun to me because if this old woman who came at me with all of this foolishness when well, you know you're not from new york and the south is racist better like she came with all of these things can acknowledge that everywhere is racist then that's kind of my way of getting the audience to go, if this old lady can accept <laughs> that all America is racist, then you can also accept this information.
1: And then you, you sort of explain further the sort of racism of the North. And do you remember when it locked in that you are like, I live in a Greek neighborhood and like this idea of internal white racism, the sort of separating the white groups. Do you remember when that locked in?
2: Um, no, when I learned about all these different neighborhoods in New York as a kid, is when I realized that because you'd see stuff about New York, it's like, Oh, this is an Italian neighborhood, and we just kind of looking at each other like, The hell are they talking about? Those are just white people. What are you saying here? Why are you splitting them up? So, because for us, it's my really my way of processing the white on white racism. Because, like, when I was doing shows in Chicago. You know, cause here it's, you know, Italian and Irish and Greek and Chicago is like, you know, Russian and Polish. and you, So mm-hmm. I switched my groups of white folks when I was in Chicago for the weekend doing shows. Mm-hmm. Um, and even they were like, yeah, you're right. This is wild. This is absolutely wild. So it's my way of processing, but also it's my way of explaining to Yankees, you are not better than Southerners. You're not better Hmm. because a lot of people from the North have this idea that because they're not, you know, these shoeless, toothless Southerners, they're better. And so I'm like, no, if you want to see how truly ridiculous you are, because you talk about black and white racism, y'all have white on white racism. Do you know how racist you have to be to break down white people? And that's where the whole point of that is where it's just going, You're not better than them. Yeah. You're not better than us. You're not better than us. Uh
1: how does this how did this joke play differently depending on where you are? Sort of different parts of the country or, or different rooms.
2: When I tell that joke in the South, they love it. They love it. And it's also them going, Yeah. They're way more racist than us. Cause the mm-hmm. thing is like when I tell that joke up here, I've had a lot of New Yorkers come up to me and go, I never even thought of it that way. It is ridiculous.
1: Yeah.
2: Or I've had New Yorkers come up to me and go, so wait, in the South, it's, like, it's, just, it's just white and black. We have other things to do. Mm-hmm. We don't care. We can't. We couldn't give a shit. Oh, you're white? Cool. Come on. Like I said, no one cares about your brand of whiteness. We don't give a shit. We don't. Who has time for that? We got Jim Crow laws. Who the fuck cares? Yeah. Who cares? And it's always been my thing. Or it's like the only reason you split off Italians and Irish because they were Catholic. That's why you split them off. That's why you made them different. That's why you did this. They were made less desirable because you needed a servant class. Hmm. You needed a neck to put a, that's what you needed. You needed someone to not be good enough because that's how America is set up. America was set up with a servant class. So once you, because you didn't have the numbers of people who had formerly been enslaved, of Africans who had formerly been enslaved, didn't have the numbers that you had in the South. You needed someone to come over that you did not respect, that you could disrespect and pay them lower wages and treat them badly. And these were the people that got picked.
1: Hmm.
2: And you decided you hated them for whatever reason and then separated them and kept them disadvantaged. And then after a certain point, they just got to be white people.
1: You, you know, um, I was thinking about this joke, especially watching the, the, the full New York clip that they, they put online and knowing you're a fan of Drag Race and you've been watching since the first season and you talked about loving Paris is Burning. And I, and I kept on thinking like, you are reading New York for filth as they as they would say, mm. is there an influence in that in there? do you feel
2: i mean I've you know come from a tradition of just jawning on my friends so yeah. and so there's a tradition among black people of just you know just jawing your friends and talking shit or whatever and so that makes sense that that tradition that we had would also be a part of The black LGBT community. Yeah. But just given more finesse. (laughs) um, (laughs) Made to really just come for someone's entire lifestyle. Just getting to the essence of people. Because my friends, Mm. you know, there's plenty of comics that have jokes about like you never want to interact with a group of black teenagers. Because they just have a way of just finding whatever it is. Yeah. Because like, I don't want to, like, they're so good. When I was a black teenager, oh, there was a way you just break someone and it's just bop, 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 done. And that's what you do. And so this is my way of processing things. Hmm. It's I'm going to pick I pick apart like this is, you know, it's just kind of I don't know how to describe it without making noises, but it's
1: (laughs) it's okay. This is an audio medium, so it's fine.
2: Right. So it's just like bop, 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 bop. Like these are the things that hit me the hardest. Yeah. So since these are things that hit me the hardest, it's boop, 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 boop. I see you. I've got it done. And so it's since those are the things that hit me the hardest, those are the things I talk about.
1: Yeah. I want to talk about your podcast, That Black Ass Show, uh, in which you, you have Black creatives on to talk about the Black TV, movies, theater that shaped them. Uh, you had Roy Wood Jr. on to talk about UPN. You had Thea Vidal talk about her 90s sitcom Thea. Ron Funches, you had on to talk about Fear of the Black Hat, which is a movie I remember loving growing up. You know, first, what attracted you to the idea and also sort of doing it? What what trends have you seen in sort of people's choices and, and what they enjoyed?
2: I was having a meeting with Starburns and pitching them ideas for a podcast. And um, Judith Carbo at Starburns actually pitched this idea to me. And I really liked the idea. So I was like, all right, well... I like this idea way more than anything I was talking about. So let's run with that. But I do notice that everyone, when people, when I ask them, you know, what TV show or movie they want to talk about, a lot of times the same things come up, you know, Living Single, Martin, um, you know, Spike Lee movies. So it's a lot of the same things come up. Hmm. And a lot of times people have like two very popular choices and then one. That a lot of people haven't heard from. So I think when um, when Zaynab Johnson came on, she was like, okay, well, I want to talk about this. I want to talk about this or Women of Brewster Place. And I was like, Women of Brewster Place. Because I know a lot of people aren't going to necessarily know that. I mean, I remembered it ever so slightly from when I watched it as a kid. Because there's a miniseries that came out like in the late 80s and it would replay on TV through the early nineties. So mm-hmm. I picked Women of Brewster Place because that's a deep cut. Like not everybody yeah. remembers that. Everybody remembers coming to America, we still reference it. But Women of Brewster Place, I knew that a lot of people weren't gonna talk about that. So that's why, you know, cause I let the guests pick what they wanna talk about. And sometimes it's like when P.D. Debreu, I interviewed him and he was like, I'm doing paid in full. And I was like, got it, mm-hmm. cool. And then other people give a couple of choices. And I think sometimes I like to go for the less mainstream or less popular choice because I hope that, you know, people listen to me and Zainab's episode and they look up women of Brewster Place. Mm
1: -hmm. On the podcast, you talk about representation, sort of good examples and bad examples. You talk about Mm -hmm. times where people had difficulty portraying themselves authentically you, you also will talk about the sort of power certain examples of representation had for your guests and how it inspired them to have the careers they had. Has mm-hmm. it made you think about your own work and or sort of what you're what you're representing or what you want to be sort of as your career progresses?
2: I think sometimes when you're in the middle of working on something, you don't realize the impact that it has on people. Hmm. And then working on other things, you realize, oh, this could be impactful to people's lives. But I don't go into any, like, every time I was on Comedy Knockout, I wasn't like, this, this, mm, it's going to bridge a gap. No, I didn't think that. Did I know that I would say something to piss off my ex? Probably. But it wasn't about, I wasn't going to be bringing communities together, uh, talking about what Andy Kindler's dating profile could be. That wasn't (laughs) happening. Um. But I filmed a movie at the, in Puerto Rico at the beginning of the year called Chick Fight. And I was one of the leads in the movie. And I'm the only black person in the movie. It's also a very small cast. We'll just mm-hmm. say that. Because Alec Mapa's in it, a Fortune filmster Kevin Nash, uh, Malino Ackerman. So that's the main cast in the movie. So it's a very small cast. Um. when I was on set, we were in Puerto Rico, and there were people who were extras. There were Black Puerto Rican extras there. And, you know, some of them came up to me, and they were like, it's so great to see you as the lead in this movie. And I speak Spanish. They're talking to me in Spanish. And I was like, really? And they're like, yeah, because people come down and shoot productions here all the time. We never see people that look like us as the lead actors in anything, Mm. or even in it. So... For me, it was a huge opportunity because I'm like, this is my first lead role in a movie. But then to know that there are not only other black women, these are black women who were saying this to me, you know, not only are there other black women, there are black women who were in the production who were impacted by me just being in the movie. And I didn't even think about it, I didn't think the impact that it would have about. Just because I was filming in Puerto Rico, I didn't think it was significant to people there. Hmm. You don't always understand when you're working that that's significant to people. Especially sometimes yeah. as a comic. Yeah. Because like, I'm just telling jokes and being silly. So, yeah. and then people go, no, you're really talking about real stuff. And to hear you say it to see it come from your mouth is significant. I'm like, thank you. Yeah
1: listening to interviews or reading some interviews with you, I saw that sort of contrast between sort of how people see you and maybe how you see yourself in, you know, a lot of people will sort of call you a political comedian. And like, obviously you do sort of political comedy on The Daily Show, but you sort of think of your stand-up as being more personal. But, and like, yes, there's, you definitely do, pers- you do jokes about your personal life or a lot of the jokes about New York are sort of more personal complaints. But on the other hand, you, you know, you chose to talk about, this part of this joke, which is, you know, at least sociopolitical. Can you talk me through how you feel about yourself as a comedian as it relates to sort of being political, as it relates to having a message or putting a message forward, like even if it wasn't necessarily your decision or your choice to do it, but like now that you're sort of seeing yourself in that position, how has sort of your feeling evolved or is it something you sort of wrestle with?
2: I talk about the things that affect me. And the things that happen to affect me happen to be political things. Mm -hmm. I could be one of those Seinfeld comics that talks about, you know, cell phones and keys and, oh, what is it like? Like, I'm not, but it's not, it's not how my brain works. It's not how I speak, it's not how I talk, it's not how I live. I don't have the privilege of not having to pay attention of how people that look like me are treated. Mm -hmm. So all I can talk about is how I walk through life. Because me just getting on stage, people see that it's political. When I was wearing lace shirts and my bra was showing people like, is you making a statement? I said, my statement is my bra is expensive. That's a statement.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: A lot of the things that I do and say is seen as quote unquote political, sociopolitical, and it does end up being that way. But all I do is just tell people about how I exist, how I walk through nature. Yeah. But my existence is political.
1: It sounds like it's important for you to focus on expressing yourself and you're aware that that self is political but you as an artist you're driven by expressing yourself and the secondary part of it is the secondary part of it but you to keep to be true to yourself means to focus on your personal feelings and not how people are going to necessarily interact with it
2: i want people to hear me yeah most of my stand up is me processing information like when I talk about being single, the next thing I say is, you know, but I don't understand because I have big boobs. Like that's what you told me. America mm-hmm. told me if you huge boobs, some man's gonna love you. So I want to recount. Where is this dude? What? Ha- I did the thing. I brought. I grew big titties. Where's my husband? Who? Where? There's a lie here, right? Mm-hmm. And so most of my stand-up is me processing information. It's why am I single? Why do people from the North think that they're not racist? Why does America think that it's not racist? Why are we doing what we're doing?
1: You know, we, we talked about a little bit, but, you know, as you said, you're you're
2: sort of at your core
1: a performer that, you know, you talked about at age six, you told your mom you want to be an actor. And you said you see stand up and acting sort of all part of your drive to perform. And You know, a lot of comedians are of that type. Some comedians might think of themselves more writerly and they sort of just think of stand-up as a way of communicating. But, you know, to think of yourself as a performer, has quarantine made you think about your relationship with being a performer since you sort of can't do it? Has it made you think about your relationship with audiences and your drive to create and how that all works together?
2: I realized when people started asking me to do Zoom shows that I'm not that kind of performer. That's what I realized. I gave the example of crowds being rowdy and me speaking lower, Mm -hmm. right? So because I've been acting since I was 10, so singing, dancing, whatever. So the audience tells you where you can go. I've done certain shows where I'm headlining where I know I can talk about anything, go anywhere and this audience will come with me. And then other times I've done shows where it's just like, I'm going to take you with me, whether you want to go or not. We're having an adventure. Come on. And then this other audience was like, all right, I'm gonna do my set and I'm done. Or there's other crowds. It's like, man, I am going to be taming lions for the next 50 minutes. I have to fight my way through fucking Jumanji. Okay, let's go. We're about to go toe to toe. I'm going to be exhausted when I get off stage. Fine. All of that information I just gave you, all of those examples. I don't know how I can't do that through a screen.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I can't do it through a screen. And you don't have interest to. And I don't have any interest to. Mm-mm. Because my stand-up isn't saying words just to get a laugh. My stand-up is I want to create an experience. Mm. Because for me, this, isn't, this is an experience. I'm creating an experience for me. And there's subtleties in the crowd where you say something, you know, I, you say something that might you push on a joke and you're like, okay, well, they let me do that. Let me see if I can go a little further. Oh, they didn't like that. Let me pull back a little bit. Oh, they did like it. Well, let's push forward. So I need the audience. I need to be able to feel. Mm -hmm. Because then that lets me know how much I can play. If there's a screen, I don't know anything. I'm just regurgitating jokes. Watch myself on Instagram. Watch myself on YouTube. Because for me, it's the same effect. Because anytime I've been on TV, I've also been in front of an audience. Mm Hmm. Also, I was talking to Tom Bell about it one day, and he was like, listen, I want a bomb in my own house. I'm bombing bomb in my house, and I live with a bomb. Who wants (laughs) to do that? I'm waking up in the morning. What's up, bomb? And I got to make me and this bomb breakfast? What are you saying? No, I'm not doing this. So just for my style of performing, but like I said before, some comics are very writer heavy. They write and write and write, and then they take it out. Me, I get an idea. I get a skeleton for it, and then I get on stage and put the blood and muscle and all of that in skeleton. that's how I work. I'm more of a performer-based comic than I am a writer-based comic. Mm-hmm. You you
1: you talked about how, you know, at first you didn't plan on becoming a comedian. Essentially, out of acting school, you were living in, in Atlanta, and a comedian at uh, Big Kenny kept on telling you you should be a comedian. You, you said that mm-hmm. for two years he was telling you you should be a stand-up. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I believe you also had the story of sort of what really push you forward was your mom had a dream that you were a Mm stand-up so you know 11 years i think it is into doing this or so Mm -hmm. why were they right (laughs) now that you can see that your mom had this sort of premonition and this comedian saw something in you and now you have sort of evidence proving it why do you think they are correct why why are you a stand-up even if you didn't know you were one
2: because sometimes people can see talent in you that you don't know Kitty saw something in me that I didn't know existed or even desire to do. And my mother, you know, co-signed it. Hmm. My mother's always been very supportive of me. There's a lot of, and I I did not realize this talking to other comics and actors. My mother was always supportive of me being an actor. She used to make me, when I would do chorus shows, because I sang from like when I was 10 and all the way up through college, because I used to do musicals. And... You know, my mother would make me costumes for shows. She'd get me props. Um, when I was doing that summer stock theater in Pennsylvania, she drove me and a girl I went to school with, who's also working there. She drove us up to Pennsylvania. So I would have my car for the summer, and then she flew back to Atlanta. Wow. So my mother's always been very supportive of me. And I forget sometimes that a lot of comics don't have that. Hmm. And then with Big Kenny, it was just meeting him at this comedy club and him just, you know, he could see that I was a performer, but he could see that I was a comic. Another comic tried to get me to the open mic, and that just wasn't what I saw for myself. But if I hadn't listened to my mother and to him and just taken this leap, then I would probably be in Atlanta right now selling stucco, <laughs> uh, waiting to see if I could be in the next Tyler Perry movie.
1: Yeah. I mean, I assume you're in constant contact with your mom, but uh, have you talked to either of them? Do they, do they see your success and be like, I told you so, or, or a, a nicer version of I told you so?
2: When I you know, when I do talk to Bikini, when I do talk to my mom, it's just them going, I'm proud of you. No one's going, I told you so. It's kind of my mother, it's kind of him and my mother going, we're glad you listened to us. Hmm. We're glad you gave yourself the chance and the opportunity. Because, you know, when you're 20, what was I, 22, 23, you think you know everything. So I'm glad that I was able to listen and just take the chance because Mm Big Kenny could have just stopped after the first time I told him no. Yeah. And he didn't. And I even had a professor in college who had done stand-up for a while. He told me that I should do stand-up because when I posted on Facebook that I was doing it, he came Cause he told me like my junior year of college. So this was like 2004 and this was 2009 when I had the graduation. It's like five years later and yeah. he came to my standup class graduation. He's like, I told you, you were supposed to do this. And I'd actually forgot that he had said it till he said he was coming to the graduation. And I never thought about it. Yeah. So no one's ever been like, I told you so. Everyone's been like, we're glad we were right. As opposed to, I told you so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, we I- told you, we knew it. <laughs> Yeah,
1: that's a nicer way of putting it than I told you so. (laughs) (laughs) That sound means it's time for our final segment. It's the laughing round. It's like a lightning round, but because it's comedy, it's laughing. So shorter questions, easier questions, ideally. Um, Do you have a favorite joke joke or street joke?
2: Uh, Baron Vaughn has a joke that I saw him do years ago where he says, uh, this is my impression of a black woman in the ocean and it's, mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. And he does his neck and it's absolutely ridiculous. and it's, it's my favorite thing.
1: Um, on that note, is there a joke another comedian tells that you wish you could steal or sort of like, it was another dimension where everything's exactly the same, but this joke another comedian had would be in your set or even a premise just something you saw, you're like, oh, I wish I had that or I wish I thought of that.
2: Sam J has a joke about, I had a joke about why Hillary Clinton didn't get elected. And Sam Jay had a joke about why Hillary Clinton didn't get elected. And her reasoning was way better than mine. So uh, after I saw her do it, I quit doing the joke.
1: Do you have a, a comedy crush, a comedian whose comedy you have a crush on?
2: Whose comedy I have a crush on? uh 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 uh, matt richards what is about matt richards he just has so much fun on stage mm-hmm. and like i have fun but like when you see because like and he'll do like he'll do a lot of songs too because like we've literally been at shows and been like where is matt richards when is he coming mm. um and so like he did this like the fun the police song and want to chase outdoor shows He has so much fun and he can, you know, he riffs songs at the top of his head and, you know, he'll do some magic. So it's just, I love, I love watching Matt Richards. I love him.
1: (laughs) This question is called sort of unexpected influences. You know, you've talked about growing up, you're a big sci-fi fan, but I read a lot. You talk Mm -hmm. about your love of Korean dramas. Is there sort of any way, shape or form that you can think of in which Korean dramas have influenced what you do with your comedy?
2: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Other than surprise people that I love them?
1: No. That's okay. This should be the last one. Um, do you have a joke that you loved but sort of never worked enough that you sort of, you kept on trying it, sort of audiences didn't respond the way you did, and eventually you sort of couldn't keep it in your act, but you'll sort of like go to your grave being like, that was funny. The audiences
2: just will never get it. I do have a joke like that, but I don't remember what it is because I quit telling it. <laughs> So it's like, if it doesn't work, I'm just like, nope. My brain needs more space. It's gone forever. It's gone forever. This episode will air
1: after the finale of Drag Race All Stars season five. Mm-hmm. Who do you want to win the finale, this season of Drag Race All Stars?
2: I want Shea Kule to win because Alexis Mateo got sent home last week. So uh, I either want Shea or Juju B to win because we all mm-hmm. love Juju B, and I mean that's probably who's going to get down to. Yeah, but yeah, I think so. Juju B or Shea Kule. All right.
1: Dulce, thank you so, so much for doing this. I really, really appreciate it.
2: Oh, thank you for having me.
1: That's it for another episode of Good One. You can find Dulce's full Conan set on YouTube. You can listen to That Black ass Show wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Show airs daily on Comedy Central at 10 p.m. You can watch her half hour special on the Comedy Central website. Follow Dulce on social media at Dulce Sloan. Good One is produced by myself, Jelani Carter, Art Chung, and Camila Salazar. Gautam Shrikashin did our theme song. Write our review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing round suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good One is a production of Vulture and the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll be back next week. Have a good one.